You're listening to The Novel Game here at avonside.studio. Wonderful whooping hello and you are very welcome to The Novel Game. My name is Robin Ince and I'll be your host and I'm joined by three panellists who are going to compete against each other in this game of literary and not so literary fakery. Would you welcome Novel Game old lag Marion Pashley? And Thanks. she's joined by two plucky newcomers, Julie Jepsum <laughs> and Simon Topping. <laughs> really fabulous wooing, by the way. And sitting next to me and hopefully keeping score is our producer, Bruce Guthrie. <laughs> and Bruce there, who got both an additional way and a woo at the end. Here then, ladies and gentlemen, are the available talent. So Marion, Julie and Simon have all beavered away and have secretly sent me their homework. In each round, I'll read out their three fakes, as well as the author's real first line. They'll score a point if they choose the right answer, but they'll also score a point every time they fool their fellows. And at the end of the game, they can redeem their points to bolster themselves against any feelings of nagging self-doubt or futility. So, round one. Uh, We start with an actual first line, and you have to tell me from which book you think think it's been taken. So this is the first line, they're out there. So is that first line from number one, Beginner's Guide to Breastfeeding by Caroline Deacon. (laughs) Number two, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Casey. Number three, Close Encounter of the Third Kind by Steven Spielberg. Or number four, Privates on Parade by Peter Nichols. So... They're out there. Uh, I'm going to start off by asking Marion, which do you think? Well, I don't think it is Close Encounters of the Third Kind, because I think that's too obvious, because they were out there, weren't they? And then they arrived. Um, (laughs) I think uh, I love the idea of beginners guide to breastfeeding uh because obviously there are such uh, there's such kind of division in in the whole kind of breastfeeding world um i'm going to do you know what i'm going to go for i'm going to go for one flew over the cuckoo's nest because it's the kind of bold statement that suits that book so they're out there so uh that's marion's answer julie what do you think begins with they're out there oh well yeah i Think yep. I think uh, I'll go for one flew over the cuckoo's nest by Ken Kesey. Simon. Uh, well, I, I'm not not too sure. Realising now, just having sat down, that I'm not quite as literate as I thought I was, and <laughs> my, with a background in business, if it's not by Sir John Harvey Jones, um, I don't really have a clue. Um, so, or employment law within uh, Yorkshire. Uh, and the boundaries of Humberside. Oh, you're going to enjoy round four. <laughs> so the, between you and Marion, I think when you find out about some of the uh, Humberside trading regulations we're going to be reading the third line of, you're going to be cock-a-hoop. I, I'm so pleased that my speciality can now come to fore after um, 20 years in the wilderness. So uh, that's great. That's a great first line, by the way, as well. So if you are going to write a novel, go with that. But I have actually have read this book. I don't know if that is cheating or it's, just, you, I mean, or it's just knowledge. If you before this show... <laughs> <laughs> somehow read every book that exists as a way I, I of cheating. One, your effective time machine means I don't even know why you're wasting time being here and not doing other things. But if you have read every book as an act of cheating, well done. Yeah, I have. I've, I've studied in China for the past year and, and that's what I've done. And I do know that it is um, number two, uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. 
Well, uh, let's find out which one it was. And uh, in, I suppose, in some ways, a rather dull opening to the show. <laughs> no, you... I'm so sorry. Have I just missed that joke? Is there out there? Is that a joke about the beginner's guide to breastfeeding? Look, They're let's not worry about... We, let the okay. audience decide what the jokes are. So That's sorry. Uh, <laughs> the... Uh, so, it's, a good, it's a good uh, rule of thumb. It was, it was one from the Cuckoo's Nest, uh, and I would tell you that it, Julie was the beginner's guide to breastfeeding. That was uh, her line. Close Encounters of the Third Kind was Marion, and Privates on Parade was Simon. And that means that in the uh, end of the first round, you're all on one. <laughs> round two, this is the uh, modern round, and this we're looking for the real opening line of The Book of Human Skin by Michelle Loverick. Uh, I'll give you a little bit of the blurb. In 18th century Venice, Minguelo Fassan, heir to a fortune, contrived to dispatch his sister Marcella, condemning her to the fate of a nun. But Marcella Fassan is tougher than Minguela imagines, and aided by a servant, a painter, a skin-obsessed doctor, a Scottish merchant, and a cigar-smoking pornographer, she pitches her wits against her brother. So, what was the first line of the book of human skin? Uh, we have number one. He was one of the rudest people in the world, if not the rudest. He was very rude to everybody and to anybody. <laughs> number two. The chime of the funeral bell vibrated across the surface of the dank Venetian waters. Number three. If you ever see a portrait of a nun, you should know she was a dead woman when it was painted. And number four. The Venetian blind proved the perfect disguise to give my brother the slip. So, let's start with Julie. What do you think? Well, it, as we know, Michelle Lovrick loves to open with talks about portraits. Uh, so I think it's number three. If you ever see a portrait of a nun, you should know she was a dead woman when it was painted. Right. Uh, Simon, what do you think? Oh, there's a lot in there. There's a lot to unpack. There's a painter and a Scottish merchant. and What would they all be doing in there? I'm not sure. Having read all the books in the world, I'm just scanning my memory for... <laughs> For which one this actually is. I I'm gonna I like the idea of the chime of a funeral bell. I just like its vibrations. Um, okay. So I'm gonna go for that. Probably. So you're gonna go with number two and Marion, which one do you think? Well number one I think is out of place. I think that's actually the start of Jeremy Clarkson's or the biography. <laughs> But I think I'm going to go with Julie, actually, because she sounds very authoritative. So I am going for three. You are going like for three? Like Julie, yeah. And uh, that was a very wise decision for the two of you, because, yes, it is number three. If you ever see a portrait of a nun, you should know she was a dead woman when it was painted. Uh, not the chimes of the funeral bell vibrated across the surface of the dank Venetian waters, which you chose, Simon. That was Marion duping you. Oh, so, well done. Well done. That means that we now have in the lead Marion on three, Julie on two, and Simon on one. <laughs> round three. Round three is adverts. So uh, we come to this round, and it's the turn of that massive American news organ, Fox News. What was the slogan for Fox News in the mid-1990s? Was it one, Fox News, fair and balanced? <laughs> Two, not just news about foxes. <laughs> Three, Fox News, sniffing out the truth. Or four, Fox News, digging the dirt and taking out the trash. So, let's start with Simon on this one. Oh, Fox News. I really think they would go for something as unhinged as number one, because I think 
Rupert Murdoch is unhinged enough to say that he's fair and balanced with his news. So I, I've got a leanings towards that. I think digging the dirt and taking out the trash, it's good, but it's a bit too showbiz for it's news. A, it's a Stallone film, isn't it's it? A, it's Cobra yeah. 2, isn't it? Taking out the trash, yeah. Van Damme's in there. They've got all the classic, you know, action heroes in that one. Sniffing out the truth still seems a bit more like it's animalistic to me. So I'm going to go, I am going to go for number one because I think Rupert Murdoch is mad enough to say that he is fair and balanced. Uh, Marion, what do you reckon? Uh, bestial or not? Uh, <laughs> I'm glad you asked. Um, so I should say that was very specifically about the round we're playing, not just a sudden moment <laughs> of flirtation by me. Um, um, well, I, I do have to say, um, obviously Fox News, we know, is fair and balanced, um, but... <laughs> I think sure for, for some reason, digging the dirt and taking out the trash just sounds so sort of grandiose, doesn't it? Grandstanding. That seems to fit Fox News, do you not think? I, I think somehow they might have the chutzpah to say that. And it rings bells in my head that that maybe was said once, so I'm going for number four. OK, digging the dirt and taking out the trash. Julie, what do you think? I'm going to follow Simon with number one with fair and balanced because I think they were, yeah, they were convincing themselves that this is a truth. Well, there we are. Uh, again, two of you were right. Yes, uh, Simon and Julie, it is number one, Fox News fair and balanced. Uh, the You, Marion, were taken in by digging the dirt and taking out the trash, which was Simon's uh, line for number two. And uh, so this now gives us a very exciting uh, situation in which you are all on three points. There's a very special joy to duping your comrades, though. Don't you find that, Simon? You feel quite special when you've written something that people have gone for. I do. I feel superior. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) A little bit smug. Just a a little bit. Yeah, it's nice. There is a little bit of a side note as well, which is uh, Al Franken, who is uh, unfortunately now the uh, somewhat shamed uh, uh, American politician, previously uh, satirist, and he was uh, sued by Fox News when he wrote a book, Lies and the Lying Liars Who Tell Them, A Fair and Balanced Look at the Right. Uh, so, Well, you see, he was using their words against them, wasn't he? Um, radio, radio. I was going to say Radio Four, but I've got, I've got aspirations. <laughs> Fuck Radio Reverb. We're going straight to the top. I'm sacked. Parsons is in charge, and you've all been turned into one large Jeremy Hardy. Uh, so. Oh, what a fate! <laughs> In round four, we turn to the celeb bio, and this week, having spun the bookseller's display carousel, we alight upon Humble Pie from 2006 by the ever-humble Gordon Ramsay. Here's... You're adding your own words there, <laughs> Here's what it says on the back of the book. Everyone thinks they know the real Gordon Ramsay, rude, loud, pathologically driven, stubborn as hell, but this is his real story as a ballet dancer. <laughs> I'm sorry, I added that bit as well. The, uh... Doing it again. For the first time, Gordon tells the full story of how he came to be the world's most famous and infamous chef, his difficult childhood, his brother's heroin addiction, his failed career as a footballer, his fanatical pursuit of gastronomic perfection and his TV persona. All the things that have made him the celebrated culinary talent and media powerhouse that he is today. And uh, the review from The Observer said, he's the genuine bollocks. And this is the tale of his personal class struggle. Oh, I hate it when The Observer show off. You see what I did? I said bollocks from bloody edgy. That wasn't it. Anyway, so... Uh, I'm the geography teacher in the cardigan. <laughs> I'm hit with the kids. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, bloody pisses me off. Sorry, kids, but it 
bloody does what's going on in the country, eh? <laughs> oh, thanks very much, Mr. Griffiths. Yeah, whatever, you know. Um, right, so here are the... Uh, this is the uh, celeb bio opening line of Gordon Ramsay's book. Is it, where I grew up, knives were not just for cooking? Is it number two... I'm a much maligned and misunderstood man who has grafted all my life against the odds to reach the pinnacle of my industry from the most humble of beginnings. Is it number three? Fuck me, this baby rice is tepid and undercooked and I wouldn't feed it to my fucking dog. Were not my first words. (laughs) Or is it number four? In my hand, I've got a piece of paper. (laughs) So, let's start with Marion. Well, uh, where I grew up, knives were not just for cooking sort of fits in with the whole hardship story doesn't it of his beginning but I'm not going to go for the short one sentence I quite like I am a much maligned I quite like the the insane narcissism of that really the the kind of runaway train who can who can reach the brakes on this I'm going to go for number two it's good working out. Mm. We'll find out shortly if it's correct. Uh, Julie, uh, what do you think? Well, I like number two as well, but I actually am going to go for number four. In my hand, I've got a piece of paper because I think that's a very good open opening that could go off to many, many tangents. Mysterious. Very mysterious. The idea of starting your book by saying, I'm writing this while sitting on the toilet, suggests that your <laughs> ghostwriter has not been overly fond of you. Um, that was Chris Moyle's uh, uh, first line, wasn't it? Something very similar. <laughs> You've read so many books I, and I some know, of them really were not required reading. Um, <laughs> I so found I'm, that at the end, unfortunately. What um, do you reckon, Simon? Uh, well, I know he's a very humble and timid man and I know he's come from a very humble background. So I really think he wouldn't swear, obviously. He wouldn't swear, so he wouldn't be number three. I think I'm leaning towards number four. I've got... Isn't that about the war? Isn't that, in my hand I have a piece of paper, wasn't that some kind of peace treaty that was vaunted? Was Gordon there? (laughs) Well, I'm actually going to go for number one, because I think uh, where he grew up, knives may have also been for cutting and eating, as well as uh, cooking. So uh, that's another use a knife can have. Well, this has made it all very, very exciting. You've all made different decisions. Uh, The person who made the correct decision was Julie, who went with, in my hand, I've got a piece of paper. That was, number four was the correct answer. Uh, Where I grew up, knives were not just for cooking. Uh, Marion has duped you, uh, Simon. And then, uh, Marion, you went with, uh, the nice thing is, Simon's duped you. Oh, in return. uh, So uh, that brings us to uh, the very exciting that that we are all on four. Oh, so we're so predictable. This is too even. Round five. Now, it's the 1998 novel Secret Sins by Catherine Haig. So, uh, the back of the book says this. Bound by destiny, their lives will be forever linked. Anne, stable, sensible and plain. But she's prepared to sacrifice everything to a moment's madness. Livia, stunning, willful and seductive, frantically seeking fulfilment when what she wants most in her life eludes her. The twins, David and Claire, the extraordinary bond they formed to protect them from an unhappy childhood, now threatens to destroy them. These children of selfish parents so quickly become a lost generation, neglected, lonely and restless. They burn bright through the glamorous, dangerous years between the wars, recklessly trying to capture the love so carelessly denied to them. So, what is the opening line of Secret Sins by Catherine Haig? Is it number one? When did my children grow old? 
Is it number two? The twins switched off the wireless, moving as one since the double onesie that they had worn since their childhood <laughs> was becoming tighter by the day. Soon it would suffocate them. Was it three? Anne sighed as Livia, striding forth, flashed her extraordinary green eyes, leaving in her wake yet another young man gasping for air. Or is it number four? I may be plain, but God, I'm not adverse to taking a risk. A risk on love. So, <laughs> let's start with Julie. What do you think? I think just because number four does sound a bit film noir, doesn't it? That rules that out for me, even though before that I thought that could be, could be it. So I'm going to go for number one, when did my children grow old? Okay, Simon? Oh, I, I think there is a rule that says go for the shortest, isn't there? Um, but I don't really want to. I just, I just like the idea of twins in a onesie. <laughs> I, I just, I just love it. I want Classic them, between the wars garments. Yeah, I mean, I, as far as I remember, Billy Bragg used to have a line in his song "Between the Wars," but I got cut eventually because <laughs> onesie's not an easy rhyme. No, no, I'm, I'm trying to think. Onesie, no, you're, you're completely right. It's like orange. It really has a, a, a rhyming line. I, I just like the idea of them being very young and then slowly, slowly, just for slow suffocation. I don't know why, but I, I, I'm obviously not going to pick that. <laughs> I'm Never before have I heard something said that is so clearly going to be played at the Old Bailey in ten years' time <laughs> when, they, when they find out what's in your drains. <laughs> oh, you've got me pegged already. Um, so I'm going to go for number three. Um, in a, in a curveball. I'm going to go for number three. I like the poetic... Um, and Ciders, Livia striding forth. And yes. uh, Marion, what are you going to go for? Well, sorry, I don't think number one, because when did my children grow old? It's all going to be written about the glamorous times that these children had, because it's a kind of Mills and Booney schlock thing, I think. The onesie thing is glorious, but I'm not going to throw my point away for that, because that's going into a different world. I think I may be plain because it's 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 so clunky and and this book deals in such clichés. I may be plain, but by God, I'm not averse to taking a risk, a risk on love. Yeah. This is Four. An absolute delight because you have replayed the previous round perfectly. Uh, the correct answer was chosen by Julie. Uh, when did my children grow old? You chose Simon's wrong answer. Hey. Simon chose your wrong answer, Who which brings us to the exciting moment of your all on five. Oh. <laughs> and Julie wrote the fantastic onesie. Yeah, I thought that was their, their childhood bond that was growing dangerous. That's lovely. I will buy any book that. that you write, Julie. Thank you. See, <laughs> right. you two are like, you're really properly just, intelligent, so you're going for the literary thing, and I'm just going for the laughs. This is what... I, I shouldn't say that. That's going to give everything away. But anyway, it's because you two have got proper brains to fall Yeah, do you know what, on. actually? I, I, I've, yeah, you're right. Uh, <laughs> We'll find out in this next round, see oh if dear. you can spot. The uh, next round is the classics round, and uh, we go back to 1939. This is an important detail when I read out some of these lines, to Raymond Chandler's The Big Sleep, and the first outing of hard-boiled private eye Philip Marlowe. Uh, it's 1946. Screen outing was the first to pair Lorenzo Call and Humphrey Bogart. So the back of this book says, neither of the two people in the room paid any attention to the way I came in, although only one of them was dead. So... The opening line of the classic The Big Sleep by Raymond Chandler, was it number one? I was dead, dead tired, but not actually dead like the stiff on my rundown office rug. Damn, I just had the thing cleaned. Is it number two? 
I entered the room where Marlowe was doing my best Monty Python Ministry of Silly Walks impression. <laughs> now, just remember some of the previous conversations you had in the last round. Stubbed my toe on the cadaver and fell face first into the formaldehyde, but neither of the two people in the room paid any attention to the way I came in. <laughs> Number three, neither of the two people in the room paid any attention to the way I came in, although only one of them was dead. Or was it number four? It was about 11 o'clock in the morning, mid-October, with the sun not shining and look of hard, wet rain in the clearness of the foothills. So, which one do you think, Simon? Well, Robin, I, I do think uh, possibly Julie has signposted herself in this round. So I think I'll go for number four on this one, uh, because it sounds like it's setting a lovely scene. OK, uh, yeah. Marion, what do you think? I don't really know this genre apart from the way it's been pastiched and so I'm going to go for one because it sounds like a pastiche of it but I think it was so sort of written in that cliche I was dead dead tired but not actually dead like the stiff on my rundown office rug yeah I'll go for that okay Julie I'm going to follow Simon with number four I think um it was about 11 o'clock in the morning, mid-October, with the sun not shining and a look of hard, wet rain in the clearness of the foothills. That is, um, I like weather, and that's a really good weather forecast. It's very northern, isn't it? Yeah, like very northern, yeah. We're all northern, so. You can see. It was it, a bit drizzly. It's the clearness <laughs> of the foothills that tell him that there's going to be hard, wet rain. Because the, the, the rain that you can't see but is there. Yeah. But I query, are there foothills in LA? Oh, mm. I don't know. Where well, are the Hollywood Hills? Foot, how, how big do mm. foothills have to be? Are they at the size of a foot? At least 12 inches. Just, just a foot? Literally a foot, yeah. All oh, right. I think that's why they're called foothills, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, that's yeah. what I've heard. Um, well, the first thing I can tell you now is that, Marion, you must never go out with Simon because he is going to lie to you and you're never going to see through him because you <laughs> yet again chose... I was oh, dead, wow. dead tired. Story was of my life. Simon. But uh, number four, the foothills and the meteorology of Raymond Chandler, that is correct. So yes. both the beauty. You, Simon and Julie, Ooh, you get a point. Nice. Yeah, um, there. Oh. And now everything changes. Marion, you're on five. Julie, you're on six. Simon, you're on eight. Whoa. Oh. We needed that, though. Next round, it's uh, Film Posters, 1989, and this film was directed by Rob Reiner, starring Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan. You, of course, know that it's When Harry Met Sally. And uh, you're the advertising copywriter tasked with coming up for a tagline for the print poster. So, which tagline was it? Was it number one? I'll have some of what she's having. Is it number two? Can two friends sleep together and still love each other in the morning? Is it number three? When Sally meets Harry, we'll all want what she's having. Or is it number four? You'll never be stuck for what to order in a diner again. Start with you, Marion. Oh, gosh. Um, I know there was quite a lot of action in the diner, um, which uh, there's two that refer to the classic, I'll have some of what she's having, which doesn't mean to say it's not true. But I think, because the whole dilemma of the film was, can two people sleep together who are friends and it not be awkward in the morning? I think it's number two, can two friends sleep together and still love each other in the morning? Julie? Yeah, I agree with Marion. Boringly, much as I'd love to go for one of the others, I've got like hardly any points. <laughs> and no one's ever going to be duped by anything I write. So I'm going to go for number two. Simon? Well, I, I, this is one of my favourite films of all time. I think Billy Crystal in this is phenomenal. It's one of my favorite. I've, I've seen it actually 39 times. I, I don't know but why how? 39. When you read all those books. Where'd I, I play it in the background whilst I'm reading. Okay. Oh, just on a, a continual loop. 
God, you're so much classier than me. I watch Lewis Collins in Who Dares Wins, the SAS movie. <laughs> it's really good in a very not good way. <laughs> uh, you're right, I've seen that. It is, it is very classy. Um, I, I think as well, quite boringly here, uh, because I have seen it 39 times, that number two is the correct answer to the, what they've put on the poster. Well, this isn't going to change much at all, scoring, apart from adding one to each of you, because that is the correct answer. <laughs> Moving on to non-fiction. Round eight is the non-fiction round. Remember, people, the clue is in the title. Non-fiction. So here is Spinsters Abroad, a book detailing the exploits of Victorian lady explorers written by D. Burkett in 1989. So the back of the book says this. What spurred so many Victorian women to leave behind the security and comfort of their middle-class homes to undertake perilous journeys of thousands of miles, tramping through rainforests, caravanning across deserts and scaling mountain ranges? How were they able to travel so freely in exotic lands when in their own countries such independence was denied them? The book draws on the diaries, letters and other writings of more than 50 such women to describe their experiences and aspirations in addressing the questions of whether women like Mary Kingsley and Isabella Bird were the intrepid blue stockings of popular history or in fact early feminists. Dee Burkett concludes that they were neither. So what is the opening of that book, Spinsters Abroad? Is it number one? Once we'd polished off the last of the Scotch eggs, we scaled the final summit of Kilimanjaro and were duly rewarded with stunning signal strength. I love you, Julie. (laughs) Is it number two? A comfortable, secure existence was the model Victorian woman's aspiration. Is it number three? Some ladies of the guild may have had the tendency to swoon in such ghastly African heat. Not I. My fortifications remained upon solid foundations. Or is it number four? Sitting by her easel at the window of a small rented room on the edge of the Pyrenees in the early winter of 1859, Marianne North cautiously made her first attempt at capturing a landscape. Julie. Well, I'm going to go for number three because we've got the ladies of the guild. We've got someone who's fortified upon solid foundations. You can't get anything more 1989. What am I looking for? Victorian. That's what I'm going for. <laughs> Those uh, 80s Victorians. 80s, yeah. Some, yeah. In, uh, uh, so I'm going to go for number three because I just think that language suggests that it's, it's uh, of the Victorian era. Simon. Yeah, I, I, I love this genre. Female explorers of the Victorian era. Uh, my it's auntie... just camping, though, isn't it? Well, uh, I mean, don't you just think when people say we're going camping, why? Well, they don't, um, carry, their, they don't carry their own camping equipment. It, They've got it, men to do yeah. that. Yeah, it's wild. Oh. It's wild camping. They don't have toilets. That's what the difference is okay. nowadays. I can't believe no. the, the fact that there's been a fantastic movement to highlight the forgotten histories of some of the incredible women who were all manner of different archaeologists, anthropologists, and yet Marion, in one line, it's just camping, has managed to take <laughs> us back all the way to 1924. Um, well, you know, if someone's got to say it. <laughs> well. Uh, yeah, Why my, leave your house? Anyway, yeah, carry on. I think that Julie does have a future in publishing because <laughs> I would buy anything that you um, write because it's very imaginative and I love Scotch eggs. And it's just drawn me that way, but obviously it's not that. Um, some ladies of the Guild, yeah, that sounds convincing to me, but 
a number four seems to be too lengthy. So I'm going to go for number two. Uh, a comfortable, secure existence was the model of Victoria uh, Williams' aspiration. Good. The correct answer was number four. Uh, sitting by her easel at no. the window of the small rented... Really? Uh, so that brings us to... Wow. Now let's see what the scores are. Anyway, so Simon, you're in the lead with uh, ten. Julie, you have eight. And Marion, you have seven. So, penultimate round, round nine. Uh, this is described as a children slash weird slash cult. So, it's a... Uh, <laughs> It's uh, Anthony Burgess's A Clockwork Orange, which is a classic, of course, children's book uh, from 1962. Now, the back of the 50th anniversary edition reads like this. A Clockwork Orange is the scarifying autobiographical confession of Alex, a juvenile delinquent of unspecified but not very distant future who tells the tale of his own criminal excesses and his re-education in the popular slang of his generation. It will take the reader no more than 15 pages to master and revel in the expressive language of Nadsat. After that, he has before him an easily digestible feast of picaresque villainy and social satire. The book can be read as a straight horror comedy or, on a deeper level, as a fable of good and evil and the importance of human choice. As the genial Alex himself might put it, it is a horror show story which will either smeck like Bazumi or bring the old tears to your glazies. So... What is the opening line of A Clockwork Orange? Is it number one? He was a Bazumi bander of Zamachat oranges out to fist the Millicents. <laughs> is it number two? I had long since mentally assigned Finkel bounding to the banned list of activities after the incident in my youth when the girth dronkel got wedged in my clecky sphere and my floaters didn't function correctly for a moon score. What's it going to be then, A? That's number three. What's it going to be then, A? Or is it four? The olds were having a snoozy day out when we smacked right into them on a bend. So, start with you, Simon. What do you think? I'm not so sure that it's going to be the very long statement. Um, as you say... Not the clacky sphere floater stronghold. It does smack of uh, unwin ease. Or Julie ease. What? It could be Julie. It could be Julie. But very, but very creative. Do get a publishing deal, I will buy. Thanks. All right. Um, I like number one, because um, it's a bit less... I, I would love to fist the Millicents. I'm not sure who they are, um, but I, I want to. It's got a real peel quality. There we go. And that was uh, fist the Millicents there. And... Uh, <laughs> I wasn't expecting anything quite so good to come out of Ho. <laughs> yeah, it does sound like a 1980s alternative band, you're right. Oh, I'm torn between three and four. The olds are having a snooty day out. Or just, what's it going to be then? Oh, I'm going to go for number three. Okay, Marion? I am going to go for number one. I think it's got the kind of language, but it's nice and succinct. We was a Bazumi band of everything else yeah i think that's right i i love julie's creation at number two <laughs> <laughs> i think that's fabulous it's it's well done, a bit you're talking about this fidget digit things aren't you the, the fidget, fidget toys fidget yeah spins. widget widget spins if that's what it means to you marion yes <laughs> Um, if it was you who wrote it. If indeed it was. But what's going to happen? It's going to be number three. What's it going to be then? Uh, it's going to be really straightforward. No, I would go for number one. Okay. Mm. Julie? I think it is number three because it's just a really open ending to a, a book. Um, so, and I don't think it is number one because the Bazumi, that's used in the, taken from the, you know, 
uh, blurb before. So, um, but I mean, I can't believe it's not two because it just to me sounds like it really fits. But well, it's awesome. You know, it's awesome. It's great, but it is a long sentence, isn't it? So, yeah, I'm going to go for number three. What's it going to be then, eh? Okay, so can I check, Marion, you went with the Bazoomies? Yes. Yet again, your relationship with Simon is precarious, for he <laughs> has duped you. The correct answer was number three, what's it going to be then, oh. A? Uh, ah. Which now, I, I think, by the way, Julie, you That's have the... won the show, even though you haven't got <laughs> the highest <laughs> yeah. score. I've got no uh, at the end, you're getting ten extra points anyway, <laughs> so you will win. Uh, I'll, I'll agree with that. Simon is in the lead with 12, Julie, you have nine, and Marion, you have seven. Uh, it's the last round, so it's the last line, and uh, this is uh, fittingly the last line of Graham Greene's Brighton Rock from 1938. Uh, it is a great book, fantastic book, and the, the uh, first movie, the 1940s movie, is a fantastic movie. The second movie, didn't they film it in Eastbourne or something? That's not as good, is it? Um, is that right? Was it Eastbourne where they filmed the... Yeah. Um, is that because they had shame. a pier? They oh, had a... Don't start reminding them about... No, oh, sorry. No. Take two points off, Marion. She's reminded oh, them about oh, that pier I'm farce. Yorkshire, I'm sorry. So the back of Brighton Rock reads A Catholic is more capable of evil than anyone Pinky, a gangster in the pre-war Brighton underworld Is a Catholic dedicated to evil and damnation In a dark setting of double crossing and razor slashes His ambitions and hatred are horribly fulfilled Until Ida determines to convict him for murder But Pinky, on the run for pursuing fury Becomes even more dangerous The review from The Spectator magazine said Entertaining he may always be Comforting never so, how do you imagine Graham Greene polished this novel off? So, number one, did he finish the book with She walked rapidly in the thin June sunlight towards the worst horror of all. Is it number two? Pinky put his back to the pink sunset, turning his weary tread up to Brighton Station. Is it three? All she was left with was a dark, forbidding sense of unease and half a stick of Brighton rock, <laughs> mint-flavoured. Is it number four? Pinky and Ida stepped out of the dark, terrifying world of the 49 bus from Port Slade. <laughs> Astounded that they had survived. Their faces lit up when they saw the flashing neon sign. Let's go to revenge. It's two for one cocktails and they've got a dark room. <laughs> they were never seen again. You're not playing the game, Julie, but no, you're really sorry. playing the game. <laughs> so, uh, Marion, four? Uh, absolutely four. <laughs> what do you reckon? Well, um, I don't know. I like... I think I read this book once, but I can't remember uh, clearly. Um, it's a bit sad, that, isn't it? Um, it's not the mint-flavoured Brighton Rock. I like the pink sunsets. But that seems a bit too... Well, obviously, it's not Brighton Station because it was filmed in Eastbourne, so... Um, the book was filmed in Eastbourne. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I was playing on a theme what I mentioned earlier and offended everyone in the room, thanks. Uh, she walked rapidly into the June sunlight towards the worst horror of all, I think, yeah. Yeah, I like the idea that she thinks she's free of it, but it's like where they come out, out of the bath and stab again, isn't it? And for listeners at home, there was a smashing mime. Uh, Julie? I think it's number two. Pinky put his back to the pink sunset, turning his weary tread uh, up to Brighton Station. It does sort of tie in with Naborn as well, with the worst horror of it all, because obviously Southern Railway are going to be up there. <laughs> um, I'm going to go for number two. Simon? 
it is number one. And if it definitely isn't number one, then I'll be very embarrassed. Well, uh, first of all, Pinky put his back to the pink sunset. Uh, that was Marion's line, so uh, earned a point for that. And uh, the correct line you have remembered is uh, she walked rapidly in the thin June sunlight towards the worst horror of all. Very dark. Very, very dark. So that leaves uh, Marion and Juliet at a tie with nine points each. And uh, the winner is Simon with 13 points. But as I've said already, the winner really tonight is undoubtedly Julie. Simon and Shuster have rung. The contract is on its way in the post. <laughs> you are now writing all novels. Sadly, we now walk rapidly towards the worst horror of all, the end of this edition of the novel game, with the stark and arresting realisation that the final scores, as I've said already, were nine for Marion, nine for Julian, 13 for Simon. Uh, so, will you join me in thanking, first of all, Marion Pashley, Julie Jepson and Simon Topping. <laughs> Our producer, Bruce Guthrie, for the many wet afternoons he spent loitering in bookshops with a camera. So he can, do you know what? There's a lovely thing. If you ever go to Notting Hill Book Exchange, they actually have a sign up saying, please smell these books when you get them home and not in here. Um, <laughs> that's for you, Bruce. Jesus. So our producer, Bruce Guthrie. <laughs> and to Ben Noble, Craig White and Lewis Dolan for making this audible. My name's Robin Ince, and my suggestion is that you make it your business to listen. Next time we play The Novel Game. To hear more episodes of The Novel Game, like and subscribe, people. Like and subscribe at avonside.studio. Oh, and while you're here, why don't you listen to this? This is Rediffusion, broadcasting on the London station of the Independent Television Authority. From a very modest beginning in antiquity, where Romans roamed, Saxons sacked, and started our history, this self-reliant, sprawling giant of a city came to be. London, London, oh, that's my hometown. London, London. That's my hometown Good morning, this is Thames from London London, London That's my hometown London, London Oh, that's my hometown.
come to the suburb that's thought to be commonplace, home of the known and the average citizen, sketchly and unigate, Dulcis and Waltermuir. Breeze done, you won't be sorry that you breezed in. The traffic lights and yellow lines, the illuminated signs, all say welcome to the borough that everybody's pleased in. Knees done, where the birds sing in the trees done. You can hear the blackbirds coo, so why not take the bakerloo? It'll work out that much cheaper if you buy a seas done. London sets the pace People come here from far and near There's no finer place Stately, beautiful, big of heart City of renown London, London That's my hometown London, London That's my hometown I've seen some fabulous cities All around the world Rome, Tokyo, and New York I've given them all a whirl I know why they sing The Paris in the spring But no place I've found Beats London, London That's my hometown London, London That's my Here's the latest weather word. 
on Wonderful Radio London. Call Mayfair 5361. When you're alone and life is making you lonely, you can always go downtown. When you've got worries, all the noise and the hurry seems to help, I know. Downtown, just listen to the music of the traffic in the city. Linger on the sidewalk where the neon signs are pretty. How can you lose? The lights are much brighter there. You can't forget all your troubles, forget all your cares, so go Brighter and the beat so big that it's turning you on. Have a coat. 